Welcome to Qtalks, a podcast series by Qtech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Shreya. And I'm Thomas. And we are your hosts for Qtalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on Qtalks, we're talking to Monique Boddington, a teacher and researcher in entrepreneurship at the Judge Business School. We're really looking forward to speaking to her about the insights she has gained from working so closely with many startups in Cambridge. Hi, Monique. Thanks very much for coming on the show with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. If you can start by giving us an overview of your background, please. Yeah, so, um, well, I'm currently at the Judge Business School and I'm the Deputy Director of the MST in Entrepreneurship. Um, for those who don't know, this is a, a two-year part-time program. It's it's mainly distance learning and, and it's really directed for, for individuals who are aiming to be entrepreneurs and really want to get that kind of academic rigor, that theoretical rigor to help them kind of not make so many mistakes, shall we say. Um, the program is really, really diverse and it's something we're very, very proud of. Uh, very, very international. Um, I've worked actually at the business school for a few years. Um, I originally started, uh, came on board due to various uh, European Union projects, um, measuring, focusing around entrepreneurship education and, and understanding the impact of entrepreneurship education. Uh, though just to put a, a kind of tangent in there, originally I actually was an archaeologist and trained as an archaeologist and did my PhD at Cambridge in archaeology. What a turn of events from archaeology to entrepreneurship. Yes, people do seem to pick up on that one. And, and often I end up kind of, you know, having to go off in a quite, you know, different tangent as they kind of get interested and ask me questions about where I excavated. Um, but these days, it's you know, I'm very, very much focused on entrepreneurial teams, um, you know, looking at kind of things like entrepreneurship and gender and, and really interested in the, the kind of early stages of a venture. So, you know, how does a venture at its earliest stages put its strategy together in a way, you know, why do some ventures seem to do so well at those early stages where some seem to die out before they've even gone anywhere? Um, so that's what I'm really, really focused on these days. Mm. Maybe we'll indulge our interests in archaeology towards the end of this. Um, but let's delve into your insights into entrepreneurship. So something that we're very interested about is the EVER project that you are working on. So can you tell us a bit more about what the EVER project is? Yeah, so um, the EVER project started um, a couple of years ago, and it was really born out of this idea that in the business school, we have an accelerator and we have all these wonderful teams going through the accelerator. And, and wouldn't it be in some way to not only support them, but to learn from them, to see, you know, what works, uh, what doesn't work, what mistakes are made. And, and so one of the issues often when you try to do something around entrepreneurship research is often we focus on these big success stories. You know, they've happened. And then we look back in time and say, well, how did they get there? 
But we thought it would be really good to actually look and follow these startups over a long period of time, you know, catching up with them on a regular basis to really see how they develop, focusing on the strategy, focusing on the team and, and see how over, you know, a, a very long period. So it's been going for a couple of years. They develop and, and, and you know, really, how does it work when they succeed, but also focusing on the failure? I think too often within research, we always focus on these big success stories, whereas often we can learn the most from those teams that actually fail. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. What, what a great research effort. So maybe to just provide some additional context to, to our listeners, how many uh, years have, have you been doing this and how many companies have you observed? And then perhaps most importantly, what are some of the insights you've gained? So, so we've been following uh, teams for about three to four years, and and obviously teams uh, come in and you know leave and go. Um, but we've had about fifty teams in the pro in the um, project overall to date, um, with you know hundreds of hours of interview data. We we now are now focusing on the core team because we've kind of got a lot of insights into the very very earliest phases, and now we want to get a few more insights to them as you know this core number of teams that have continued will scale. I, I would say actually from the sample we have more teams that have unfortunately failed than succeeded, but you know we know this about entrepreneurship. We know it's it's a risky endeavor. Um, we've had a you know a variety of findings. I, I think really. The one that uh, is kind of most interesting is the fact that we definitely have seen that those ventures that don't pivot, don't have some form of course correction, uh, will die. You know, those that stick very, very much to the, the first business model they have in mind, to the first idea very strictly, they just, they don't, they don't survive, they die. So, so we know you know, this is very well known, but it's good to get that confirmation that, you know, you need to pivot, you need to change direction. Um, the other thing we've kind of seen as well is that if you follow the, the kind of general literature, what we see in the popular media and often the popular cases around pivoting and, and that language is that pivoting is often seen as a very, very big course direction. So, You know, a good example of a pivot is uh, YouTube, which originally started as a, a dating, a video dating website and, you know, obviously changed direction completely when they got no traction into what we know of it today, which is quite a big change or something like Twitter, which was originally um, a podcast sharing platform. You know, so quite big changes. And we often have that that image that a pivot is a really big course correction. What we found following the ventures is actually the majority of ventures don't make such a large course correction and not so quickly. So what they do is they make a lot of very small changes to the venture, small changes to the market and, and their business model, rather than just like suddenly making one big course correction and going in the opposite direction. That very, very rarely happens. And instead, what it is, it's the process over time of slowly, slowly changing. And yes, if you go from kind of looking where the start point is and the end point, I guess by that point, it may be a very big change, but it's through multiple iterations. In the earliest stages, uh, the most common pivots we see, and it's not really surprising given the focus, is really around the team, um, the market and the product. And this is really about kind of the team often is 
to do with kind of getting the right and skills and abilities. But often as individuals start working together, things will change and, you know, members of the team will leave, members of the team will come in. Um, and then the market and the product is about getting that market product fit. So obviously we see the kind of changes as they iterate, as they kind of go out there and speak to people, as they test the product, that we see these shifts in market and product. Now, as a venture develops, it gets all a lot more complicated. That's what we see. So, so at the early stages, you know, ventures are very much focusing on these very core competencies, these core elements of the business model. But that will only get them so far. And, and as you increase in size, you need to be able as a venture to focus with a, a much bigger landscape. So you're going to have a lot more choices out there and you're going to have to focus on a lot more different elements as well. So, you know, things like partners become crucial, pricing, your supply chain, the financing side. And so, therefore, actually, the level of complexity around pivoting shifts and changes through the venture. So, at the very, very earliest stage, you're just trying to come up with an idea. And then often there's this phase of trying to get the good, the right product market fit. And then as you want to actually scale and broaden and make this a really viable venture, you're going to have to focus on so many levels. So, the complexity and the dimensionality increases over the time of the venture. The other thing we see is because this complexity changes over time, at different stages, the way you need to pivot also changes. And, and so if you imagine at the, the earliest, you know, this mid-stage where you're trying to find this product market fit, this is done for a lot of testing, a lot of kind of going out and getting external signals. But at the later stage, that can be a little bit limited. And, and, and you need to be able instead to draw together all that you know about kind of the landscape, about the industry, about your customer, and be able to make kind of more broad generalizations and, and kind of almost inductive leaps of faith so that you can actually bring in new ideas to scale and broaden that venture. One of the things that I'm still trying to figure out, and, and really this is as we go the research, is that what I can see from our founders is that some seem to do this very naturally, this kind of evolution in terms of their, the complexity they're dealing with and, and the dimensionality and how to deal with this, that some founders deal with this very, very well and can make it from kind of this, this period of just kind of testing and getting a negative signal or a positive signal to kind of making more of an inductive, like an inference around all that information. And that shift seems to happen naturally for some, and whereas for others, it doesn't. And this does seem to separate those teams that do start to actually get to the next stage of growth and those that seem to almost get stuck. And so while, you know, going back to the original point I made that, you know, you either have to pivot or die, there seems to be a little bit more to it. And, and there seems to also be about pivoting enough. And, and, you know, it's not just about just don't pivot or pivot. It's also about don't pivot too much. And, and I've seen ventures that seem to almost end up stuck in this kind of loop where they keep trying to respond to every signal they get. So, you know, they'll talk to one 
possible customer and they'll say, oh, yeah, I love your product, but you need to do this. So they change their product. And then they'll go and speak to someone else and they'll do it again. And they keep doing that. And and what seems to separate successful founders and successful ventures is knowing when they've had enough information externally to say, okay, we've got all of this now. What do we do? Whereas if you keep changing and changing and changing, if you imagine you're just going to keep, you're going to go in circles. So a key element is knowing when to pivot and knowing how to pivot. That's really interesting, your insights that you've gained into pivoting. So just to make sure that I've understood what uh, what you've been saying is that there's, what you found is there's a, a balance between pivoting enough and responding to those cues that you're getting um but also knowing when you've had when you've had um enough of the signals to uh, kind of stand your ground and a lot of that is then carefully kind of intertwined with the nature and characteristics of the founder themselves exactly so i guess the stage we're at now is really trying to identify what it is in some individuals who seem to be able to do this quite naturally to seem to understand what type of pivoting they need to know when and how frequently to pivot. And also, you know, understanding when they need to stop making kind of big changes to the product or really focusing in on a specific market rather than continuing to respond to every signal. So really the next stage of research is really trying to unpack that, particularly if, you know, we can we can definitely teach and we do teach, you know, around ideas of prototyping um, and how to test an idea, but understanding the limits to that. And I think that is one area that as, you know, academics and also even in terms of the the advice we give to others that we don't fully understand is is where are the limits? When does this exactly work and when does this not work? Mm. Something that we have come across a lot when speaking to founders and also investors is the important importance of teams and building your team around you carefully. What are some of the patterns for success and failure? As you said, it's important for us to talk about the failures as well. So whilst you might not be able to speak of specific examples, um, perhaps you can give us an insight into what you've seen in terms of the team building. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, it, it's very well known. And I think, you know, often often we have this image of the kind of heroic entrepreneur and yet the reality is that it's, it's always about the team. Um, it's always a joint effort. And, and too often this is, I think, forgotten by people who just look at kind of these big characters that we have in the media. And one of the, the kind of almost like very, very early on in the project we saw was that pretty much all the ventures that failed in the first round of kind of ones that dropped out, it was because of the team. And, and generally, it was because the team broke down. There was something that would happen um, and, and there would be a fallout. And one person would go one way and the other person would go the other way. And, and in the majority of cases, that would tear apart the company. So, you know, getting the right team and being able to work together is so important. Um, you know, what is really key, I think, is in those teams I've seen that work well, is that they have... You know, this level of transparency, this level of honesty and trust within the team, which really ensures a really kind of one, very, very supportive space, 
but also a very, very safe space. So people feel very open to communicate and talk. You know, when I, I've talked to these founders and often it can get, you know, there, there are the good times and the bad times. And, and you know, having a, a member of the team to tell you when you're doing something wrong or being very open about maybe a problem with the idea that they've seen also needs the rest of the team to be able to listen and take that on board. And that is hugely, hugely important because if otherwise you may end up with individuals who don't trust each other and go off and do things together and and it just doesn't work. Or maybe someone has seen a big critical problem with the underlying venture and they don't feel able to speak up. Um, you know, I've often, when I've spoken to founders about this, I've often, when they're talking to me about, oh, well, how do I, you know, I often get asked by very early stage entrepreneurs, you know, how do I find a co-founder? And I, I always kind of tell them to go slowly at it because, you know, it's a little bit like a marriage and, and like a marriage, you're not just kind of going to go and run down the aisle and marry this person. And, and the fact is you're going to be spending a lot of time with this person or people over the time of the venture. And so therefore it's worth going in slowly and worth growing as a team and building that trust, building that transparency. One thing I found quite interesting is that actually while that is very much the case, the actual form of the team can be different. So I've seen teams that very much have a key leading founder. And then the rest of the team do actually then build themselves around that founder. And that founder makes a lot of the key decisions. But that still means that transparency and trust still needs to be there. Whereas often a lot of the the kind of textile ventures that we see coming out of um, you know research from the university, you know PhD students, postdocs, I find often within those teams you'll get a couple of individuals uh, that uh, work very very closely together. Now the issue in the first team is that. If you have one single leading co-founder, so someone who is really the leader with the, the rest of the team almost being kind of secondary underneath them, so very hierarchical. As that leader and as that founder, you've got to make sure that you build that trust, that culture, and make sure you're always listening to those down underneath you. In the second type of more egalitarian team, the issue can often be when um, – you, the individuals are often very similar. They often come from very similar backgrounds. They have very similar interests. They often come from having very, very tech backgrounds, which can lead to the issue that the team doesn't have certain skills and abilities in other areas. Uh, for example, when they need to go out and actually start speaking to customers, this can often be very, very difficult. They often can also love the technology and be very, very technology driven, which can almost make them blind at times to some of the technological problems. So in the, in the first team, it's a lot about listening. And in the second team, is a lot about you need more diversity. So in those teams, I find the things that work very well is one, um, openness to learning. So having a team that's very open to learning. The second is having key roles within the team. Because if you have three individuals who are quite similar, they may all try and focus on the same thing. But to make sure that different elements are given, they often have to divide the role and then focus a little bit more on their role and expanding and learning within that area. Obviously, bringing in externals is also 
can be very useful in that kind of very similar team where you have three founders say that are very, very interesting. As a final point, in terms of, I, I started off with this idea that teams can often tear themselves apart, you know, at the very, very earliest stages. And, and one of the reasons, I think the main reason I've seen that for happening is around the individual motivation and the individual vision. And usually in teams, you know, who try and tear themselves out at the very, very early stage, it's because they don't have a unified motivation and they don't have a unified vision, which means when they first start trying to make difficult decisions, they often will disagree because they are not unified by a motivation and vision. And, you know, I, I'm thinking about a very, very specific venture who founder who I spoke to recently who had it where one of the, the members of the team left. And they were, they were quite upset about the, the person leaving. And I, I kind of sat down and I said, well, the problem was you were never on the same page. He was in it for very, very different reasons to what you're in it for. And so building a team around people who are motivated towards a, the, you know, a very similar vision, I think really helps get you through those difficult times and also really helps when you're making those decisions because it gives you a very, very strong foundation to always lean back on. Oh, that's fascinating to hear. Um, and uh, another aspect of your research, which I, which I find also fascinating, is that you have looked into the role of gender in entrepreneurship What are some of the things you have found in this regard? So looking at gender and entrepreneurship, is, is, it's, it's a real kind of passion for my research. And so in terms of what we found, I guess one of the things I has struck with me so much in my time um, educating women and also researching on this topic is When you speak to a lot of women, and we used to run a course uh, a few years ago that focused a lot on kind of PhDs and postdocs at the University of Cambridge, was so these are individuals who are very, very intelligent and have often the right skills for possibly having a good opportunity to take to market. But for them, they've never f even considered entrepreneurship. In, for them, it's almost, I would say, it's almost like a dirty word in a way. And, you know, the course focused very much on trying to almost shed new light and shed different light on the subject and explain to them how actually entrepreneurship is something that could actually allow them to make the difference they want to, to actually bring their idea to the people they want to and and therefore seeing it as more as a tool to to kind of facilitate that was quite a big shift for these women and and we had a lot of success in terms of doing this now the second component is also how many women entrepreneurs i've spoken to who do not describe themselves as entrepreneurs And these are ladies who are very, very impressive, who have done, set up all sorts of, you know, businesses, initiatives, social enterprises, for-profit enterprises, the whole range. And they, they don't like the label. And I think this is one of the big issues that I've seen is the way 
we often portray what entrepreneurship is. So in terms of the characteristics of what entrepreneurship is, um, you know, puts off a lot of women and, and men, to be fair, because, you know, you've only got to look at the popular media. You know, we all watch TV. We all read the articles. You know, look at something like The Apprentice, which so many people watch and, and has actually in recent years focused around the idea of entrepreneurs and, and the stereotypes that they they put across on that TV show. You know, the 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 risk takers, the the driven by money. It's all about profit, which really actually personally annoys me because for me, entrepreneurship is while yes, growth and profit is great. It is about so much more. And, you know, sometimes those people are extraordinarily arrogant. And, and that stereotype that we portray out there, you know, I think is it, it's sad that we're still doing that because for me, when I, I go back to, you know, my research and I go back to those founders that I speak to and I look at the things they're trying to do, they, they often do not embody any of that. They, they're individuals often with an opportunity that will really actually have a very, very positive impact on other people. And so therefore, in terms of gender and entrepreneurship, I think these stereotypes and this kind of, you know, the underlying social structure in the way that normalizes this, you know, puts off a lot of women and, and puts a lot of, uh, of men off entrepreneurship by kind of giving it this very masculine characterization. I think the other thing also that is increasingly important to talk about here as well is intersectionality. So, you know, it's not just we don't need to just focus on this kind of men versus women or, you know, for one, it's not a binary. But also we need to focus on the fact that, you know, entrepreneurship, particularly, you know, where we've seen big movement with women and more women going into entrepreneurship. It is often those from a highly educated, often white um, and often, you know, middle class or upper middle class background. And therefore, we need to talk a lot more about the intersectionality at play, about how race plays within this as well. Because, you know, you're not just a, you know, a woman. You can be a woman of a specific background as well or, or a man of a specific background. So I think we need to focus a lot more as well on that. Because, again, going back to the stereotype, what we see is often a man of a specific age showing specific characteristics and, and for the most part, white. And, I, and you know... There is so much we're missing by doing this. There is just so one, it is increasingly clear that this type of entrepreneurship is not sustainable in the long term. The growth at all costs, it, you know, we can't just continue growing. There are big issues out there. You know, we only have to look at the world today and without going far, too far into the into that obviously there is there are so many things that you know where entrepreneurship can I believe have a positive impact and as long as we're sticking with this very traditional model of entrepreneurship you know that limits that impact and also it limits the opportunities because the way think about it this way if we always see entrepreneurship for a specific lens it means that the type of businesses and the types of ideas that we, we take to market will only kind of come from that specific lens. Whereas if we think of it much more broadly and we think about allowing kind of a lot more broader diversity in terms of the people behind it and, and the types of entrepreneurship, 
it'll give, I believe, a real, you know, it will completely broaden the types of businesses we will see. And, the, and it will actually help in terms of building new ideas and new opportunities that I believe can make a real difference in the world. This has actually blown my mind a little bit. Um, I think it's such an important topic to talk about because it affects who goes into entrepreneurship and how they act when they are um, founders or working in startups. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. Um, so you say that um, uh, women have to, you've seen that of people have to act like men do so in a sort of confident in an outwardly manner but would you say this uh sort of bullish behavior um could also be described as uh being more american rather than approaching it in, in a british manner and also oh, wow uh, on that point do you also think that it it is necessary to to be more confident as a founder in order to um kind of gain gain funding and in order to put yourself out there um, so, so I never said actually that, you know, you had to be these characteristics. I think there's the expectation that you should be these characteristics. Um, I, I don't know whether, I, I don't want to stereotype by nation, but I have met a lot of founders in my time. And I can tell you that even, so even some of the most successful founders of the Cambridge cluster, so some very big names, um, are not that, you know, they are often, uh, you know, Cambridge is a very special place and we are, you know, at the end of the day, Europe's uh, biggest tech cluster. So we are very tech driven. And a lot of those early founders are very much more tech driven in themselves. So they are often in themselves, not stereotypes. And so the answer to it is that there are founders come in all sorts and you found you get founders that are not confident. The problem is that with these stereotypes, it means it sets a certain expectation, which it has impacts in other ways. So a really good ex example of how it has impact is because we set these stereotypes of these certain characteristics, even though these stereotypes in practice are really very inaccurate, is that um, therefore people expect that they associate that characteristic with a specific demographic. Therefore, because we associate with a specific demographic, we kind of therefore suggest that a specific demographic are somehow going to be better at it. Which, because this is embodied within our kind of ideas and our structure and our society and normalized, the knock-on factor means that the structure therefore rewards those people who fit into that demographic. So a very good practical example is if we look at venture capital funding. Venture capital funding can be very, it's, it's, very critical to the growth of ventures, like particularly if you want to have high growth and large growth. And and yet most VC funding goes to men, full stop. That's very well known. And, and there have been years of kind of trying to get to the bottom of why that is. And, and one of the initial responses was, well, you know, it's because they're just better and they can grow businesses better. And it's like, well, of course you're saying that because that agrees with your stereotype, doesn't it? That agrees with what you believe about this. And, and actually, over time, a lot of research started kind of plugging holes into this and saying, well, actually, that's not necessarily the case. Men don't necessarily grow. And there's been a lot of figures recently suggesting that actually women who are funded actually grow better. So, you know, it's inconclusive. 
But that still doesn't explain why VCs therefore give men more money and, and women have a lower chance. And, and some research has actually recently gone into the actual, you know, discussion. So when founders try and raise money. And one of the found, things they found is that, A, they ask men very different questions to women. So men often get questions, performative questions around success. So, you know, well, how are you going to grow this company to a billion dollars? Whereas a woman will be asked a question more like, well, how is this not going to fail? And what that means is that the person asked the success question is already going to say, oh, well, yeah, I'm, you know, I can grow it like this. Whereas automatically when you're, you're kind of asked the second type of question about failure, you're automatically on the defense. And this has a negative effect. If you are always defending and not kind of showing the positive sign, that will directly impact whether your venture is funded. The other thing is, is that there is a signaling effect. So if we have this stereotype in our mind and, you know, you have someone who is fitting to the stereotype of their demographic, then, you know, you will kind of get a positive reinforcement. Whereas if you have someone who is not fitting the stereotype. So the common one for women, unfortunately, is that, you know, you know, women who kind of push for things like pay rises or, you know, say you're in that discussion with that VC and you're you're showing that you're this strong, powerful care. You're not and being pushy around it. A man will be labeled as being, you know, that that's great. You're being an entrepreneur, whereas a woman will be more likely labeled something like a bitch and it will actually negatively. So so what I've kind of tried to be interested in is that we have this level of these barriers. So these things that are actually stopping certain people getting into entrepreneurship. So the first thing is people from certain backgrounds don't even think they can be an entrepreneur because of their background and who they are. The second thing is that even if they get past this, they're going to face increasing barriers. And so what I've been interested in is actually trying to better understand, you know, socially, what is the structure that reinforces it? Because, you know, taking this to another level, yes, the structure is shown through programs like The Apprentice, the way we have, and I'm not going to name names of specific entrepreneurs, but the way we hold up these specific characteristics who are, you know, can be very interesting on Twitter, for example, let's say that way. Um, but where does that come from? But also what else does that influence? So it also influences the way we educate. So how are we teaching entrepreneurs? So, so these are the kind of it's it's not there's no one fix to this. And we really need to understand this whole puzzle, because I think if we can understand this whole puzzle, then we can, you know, I, I believe entrepreneurship is a really good tool and, and often it's seen as this tool of empowerment. But if it's only available to a specific tool group, that's not very empowering. And and also that that means that entrepreneurship is not making the most of everything. You've, you've already alluded to a, a number of factors that influence entrepreneurship. And I think that's very important to realize. So that includes the sociological and societal factors you, you already mentioned. I was just a little bit surprised, uh, to be honest, um, that that some women seem to have, in your experience, that negative view of, of entrepreneurship. Because I, I would have thought that entrepreneurship, um, entrepreneurship of all things 
is one of the most liberating ones because you don't actually need some permission to do it. I mean, you can you, you can just do it if you want to do it. You don't need a degree. Uh, you don't need anyone's permission. If if you want to, you can just name yourself an entrepreneur and and go out and and, and do it. Um, so maybe it's also important to view this in in in, in a broader context because. Yes, there are very particular types of entrepreneurship, and you you mentioned that the the high growth, venture backed apprenticeship uh, type forms of of entrepreneurship. But there are probably also other forms of entrepreneurship we we should keep in mind. Oh yeah, I agree, Thomas, completely. And I mean, you know, these are very broad generalizations, and one should always be. You know, it's always very difficult when you're talking about a topic like this. You you sometimes have to make those broad generalizations. But no, I mean, entrepreneurship comes in in many forms, and you know, actually too much focus. Actually, if you look at businesses, it's a very small percentage that are in that category of high growth VC funded. The majority of businesses will not ever be in that category. You know, the backbone of the British economy is the, the small business. And, um, you know, and also, you know, social enterprises and, and also blended enterprises. So, you know, why does a business have to be either social or for profit? Why can't it be both? Yeah, no, good, good point. Now, maybe to finish up on a on a slightly lighter note, one one thing we were wondering about, and we couldn't resist given your background, what is something entrepreneurship can learn from archaeologists? Okay, so uh, lots is the simple answer to that. So I think one thing that's very very interesting is that archaeologists like entrepreneurs, um, are strongly motivated by passion. And I, I feel like, you know, archaeology can be pretty, pretty tough when you're out there in the field and you're working long hours and, and you know, literally digging through the dirt. And and it's really that passion, that shared passion that really unifies. So I think that's that's one. I also think that one of the things that we can learn from archaeologists is uh, around their tools of interpretation. So, A, one of the ways we interpret the past is through analogy. So we, you know, we're always limited by using other examples. So we often use modern analogy, ethnographic analogy. So looking at, you know, tribes in the rainforest, um, you know, to try and compare it, looking at hunter-gatherers in the present to understand maybe how hunter-gatherers, for example, in the past did it. Analogy is a very, very strong tool for interpretation. But I think it could be a very, very tool, interesting tool for actually entrepreneurs because one of the key things about entrepreneurship is not just, you know, as things go along, but also, you know, identifying an opportunity. So looking around you and looking at society and seeing what you can learn to, to better establish your venture, but also to ideate and coming up with new opportunities. So that's the first lesson. The second is the way that we often see archaeologists, you know, we kind of go out there, we excavate and, and we find a series of small walls and we interpret it and that's it. We're done. But the fact is, is that our knowledge of the past is constantly changing and shifting as, as new data comes in, it changes and shifts. And, and again, this is something that the entrepreneur needs to do. We talked about pivoting at the beginning. The way we do this is about learning, about getting more knowledge, about gaining new data, and then incorporating that into our business model, or in the archaeological sense, the history, the past. And finally, um, 
the very last site I worked on some years ago, um, there were teams from multiple countries um, that brought in a diversity of backgrounds, a diversity of skills. And one of the things that was really encouraged on site was this idea that we have our own biases. We see the world through our own lenses. And therefore, in interpreting the past, you know, say we we kind of I'll go back to my series of small walls. We, we have a series of small walls and we kind of have a certain interpretation of that. But that interpretation is always going to be limited by what we know, because it is very much the case that, say, we have a different interpretation. There is a, a different way. You know, we think that, that it could be something completely different, but we simply do not have the idea or knowledge in our mind. And, and therefore, really bringing in that diversity of backgrounds, those, that diversity of ways of looking at the world is really, really important because it will broaden the possibility. It will make us check our own biases. Um, I mean, we, one of the things that is most, most dangerous for an entrepreneur is, is confirmatory bias. You know, I've, I've got this great technological idea. It's going to change the world. Everybody wants to buy it. And, and then we only look at the signals that confirm that. And therefore, I think it's really, really important as an entrepreneur to, to try and look at the world from other people's point of view, to try and actively discredit what we know and, you know, discredit what we assume. And therefore, we need to talk to a different loads of people, test our assumptions, um, focus on diversity within the team. Fantastic. I feel like we could talk for days about all of your all of your insights. Um, but unfortunately, I think we have run out of time. So thank you for being so open about the insights that you have gained. Um, I've certainly found it really interesting. Thank you for your time, Monique. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much to Monique for joining us on Q Talks. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we would also like to say a big thanks to the team at QTech, who've all been working very hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks.